0: Well, good evening, those of you that are joining me tonight for the Wednesday night Bible study uh, through the book of Genesis. I pray that this finds you healthy and well and uh, having some good conversations with family and friends. Uh, If you were part of our worship last Sunday, it was great to see so many of you back in church. Uh, We hope to begin services back on Wednesday night and others starting in July if things continue to go uh, well. So uh, just keep that in your prayer and uh, it's good to be back with you tonight. As we begin, of course, there's a lot going on in our country and in our church family and so I just want to spend a moment in prayer. Uh, I want to ask that you be in prayer for Jeanette Bailey. Uh, of course, she had sustained an injury while mowing that has become infected, and she's being treated with a seven day course of antibiotics. But she will be visiting an ortho surgeon on Friday for a consult on a uh, postponed surgery and consideration of a possible torn tendon from her injury as well. So please keep Jeanette in, in your prayer. Also, Uh, I heard from Michelle Keese after Sunday who let me know that I made a mistake. Uh, Next week is not Father's Day. Father's Day is actually on the 21st. So I called it a week early, and I apologize for that. Uh, But she also let me know that uh, she only has sugar issues, and her blood pressure has been good. So let's just keep Michelle uh, in prayer for that. Also, I'd ask that you be in prayer for Sarah Panatera, uh, she is going through her fifth pregnancy after three consecutive miscarriages, and so we pray that this pregnancy goes well and that, that God will watch over Sarah as He always has. Uh, I want to pray for all those multiple allergy sufferers out there with me. Uh, you may hear me sneeze or something during this uh, recording, and that's probably why a lot of you are going through it. Uh, and then I have a few uh, confidential requests that uh, I really can't go in depth on, but they're very serious, and I just want to ask that you pray for some individuals and families that are going through some very, very traumatic and difficult times right now. Uh, Many of you have family in the Midwest and out west, and you know that Tropical Depression, Cristobal, is uh, dumping heavy rains and causing a risk of flooding across the plains and the Mississippi Valley, uh, all the way up to us and the Great Lakes. And so we wanna be in prayer for those in the path of the storms uh, that are coming. Uh, Of course, I record this on Tuesday afternoons, and so uh, you probably already have the result of the prayer that you're praying, but we still need to be in prayer. Uh, Also, uh, today is the day that George Floyd was buried in a private ceremony in Houston. Uh, I was reading uh, a blog a couple of days ago from Bob Russell, and he asked the question I thought was very relevant. He says, have you ever witnessed a heated argument when both sides are shouting at each other and no one's listening? While one person's ranting, everyone else is thinking about what they're going to say as a counter-argument. The shouts get louder, the wounds get deeper, nothing positive is accomplished. And and that's a great description uh, sometimes of where we are as a nation today when it comes to racial and political issues. Uh, No one that I've heard has disagreed about the unjust, brutal treatment of George Floyd. But uh, that we all know that kind of force ha- is unnecessary. It's got to stop. But now uh, you hear shouting in public protests, in riots, they're doing a lot of physical damage. Uh, social media posts are just uh, nauseating, actually, to see go back and forth. And there are heated conversations about defunding the police and the needs for justice and order. And you get the sense sometimes that nobody's really listening to the other side. Um there's a lot of exaggeration out there, and uh, Mark Twain once wisely observed, anger is an acid that does more harm to the vessel in which it's stored than to anything on which it's poured, and there's a lot of acidic things happening in conversation. Now, and I think it's time to do what the Scripture says and be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And that's good counsel. Uh, you know, in the earliest words of Scripture, God said, let us make mankind in our image uh, let them reflect our image in nature and be responsible to manage the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and all the earth. Uh, everything that moves on the face of the earth. And if we would start to think of each other as being made in the image of God, racism would have no place. Uh, men would not abuse their spouses Children would not be abusive to their parents and vice versa. Employees would not neglect uh, their employers and vice versa because we all would look at each other as those that carry the divine image within them. And so I think if we just return to what God's design was, how much better off we would all be. So if you would, let's uh, just begin our study tonight and go to the Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you as one who sees everything, who has taken all into account that is said and done and even all that is thought and never spoken or acted against. Father, the way we see our nation today is only a small portion of what you see. And I just ask that you give us a path to be blessed because of our trust and our dependence upon you. Lord, for all that is unpopular in following you in our society today, we just thank you that we are considered worthy of, of suffering because we wear your name. But we also know the only way for this nation to flourish is to return to you. And so, Father, we ask that you would just let your righteousness be our hunger and our desire, that you would work in us, Father, to make a difference in our own families, in the churches that we worship at, that, Father, we would begin to see sin for the ugly thing it is, uh, not just to our own soul, but the disgrace to any people, And I just ask that you would help us to abandon uh, the rhetoric, abandon the the evil that's in our world and turn to you humbly and look for your blessing. Uh, Father, our strength as a nation is not found in law enforcement or military strength. Our strength as a nation is found in the righteousness of its people and its government and its military when they look to you. So Father, help us to honor you in all things and look to you For protection, Uh, I ask that you would be the one to guide minds into wisdom and to understanding of one another. And I ask that you would be uh, the answer for the needs of our individual lives and and our hearts as well. Father, help us to fight the good fight. Help us to believe the truth of your word. Uh, Give us courage to resist temptation in our life, uh, in our minds, and in our hearts so that we can worship you wholly with everything. Father, help us to do battle with the things that we need to do battle with but only with the weapons that come from your word and only with the message that transforms us first and then that we can see it transforming the lives and the good of those around us. Father, don't let us be overpowered, but help us to be faithful and stand up for you and for believers of every generation. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the grace that you provide and a wisdom and a a knowledge that is so much more uh, purposeful, so much more strong and courageous than anything this world could offer. You are the sufficient one. Uh, You are more than adequate. You're above and beyond to guide us through whatever we face uh, individually, as a church, as a nation. Help us to believe. Help us to trust. Help us to obey. Help us to follow you in all things, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, if you have your scripture with you, I'm going to ask that you turn in the Old Testament to Genesis, the sixth chapter. Uh, Last week, we ended talking about uh, the lineage of Adam to Noah and what the value was of having those lineages in the Bible that, of course, ultimately lead us to the one and only Jesus Christ, the the promised Messiah. But I love uh, how it ends uh, in chapter 5 with Noah at 500 years of age, becoming the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And yet to to be a father at the age of 500, I I could not imagine what that would be like. But uh, as much as I love being a a dad, (laughs) uh, you know as you look forward, uh, maybe some of your Bibles have those little over the chapters, you know we're going to be talking about the flood. Uh, of course, it would happen around 2348 B.C. Uh, we're talking about a year-long global catastrophe that would destroy the world, that would reshape continents, that would bury billions of creatures and uh, lay down the, the rock layers that we see today. It would be God's judgment on man's wickedness and only eight righteous people and representatives of every kind of land animal would be spared a- aboard that ark. But we begin with a very interesting group in uh, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, that we just need to look at briefly here. And I'm reading from the New International Version. Uh, some of you will have a slightly different version, and it may raise more questions. And I want you to feel free, uh, if you have any questions about this, to shoot me a uh, uh, an email or a text uh, at my phone at 925-6039 or at bill.warax at gmail.com. But uh, Genesis 6.1 says, when human beings began to increase in number on earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they're mortal their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Well, the question comes up uh, from that passage, who are these people? Who were the Nephilim? It came about as men began to multiply on the face of the land. And the word sons of God there, the Bnei Elohim, they saw the daughters of men were beautiful and took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Later on, if you read in the, in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 30 through 33, Caleb would quieten the people before Moses. So we're talking generations later in Numbers 13, verse 30, and say, We, by all means, should go up and take possession of the land, for we can surely overcome it. But the men who have gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people. They're too strong for us. And they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, Well, the land through which we've gone and spying it out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak now are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Well, let me me try to describe this a couple of different ways. Uh, Genesis 6 and Numbers 13, one before the flood, one after the flood, will list the Nephilim. And they have been the center of discussion since, since this was recorded, honestly. At this point, uh, the sons of God are still being debated today. Uh, there's even a, a view out there that's a popular unbiblical view that we're talking about aliens. But I'm going to leave that to the Discovery Channel and all those shows to talk about that. Uh, but of the views that have some biblical support, some think that the fallen angels bred with human women and resulted in these giants called Nephilim. Some believe the sons of God were the result of fallen angels that overtook these uh, ungodly men to breed with women. And some think, well, no, they're the Sethites. They're the descendants of Adam's son, Seth. And there's some minor versions and views as well, such as kings and rulers or heads of leading family groups as being the godly. And and they'll even point to Psalm 82 as the Lord God saying to quote, little lowercase gods. Uh, And that view has a lot of similarities to the Sethite view, but it eliminates many of Seth's descendants and and merely keeps them as leaders and kings of godly. Uh, And I'm going to leave that out, and and we'll talk about the other two views, which I think will accomplish it for the most part. And another is just the view that these godly men had relations with ungodly women, and that their offspring would be the ones that followed after other gods as opposed to the the capital G God of Scripture, and that they would fall away uh, in tremendous ways. And this is called the fallen man view, and it happens throughout Scripture uh, that the, the people of Israel even will buy into some of the views of the, the people in Canaan where they go to settle, and, and because of that, uh, people become Ungodly. Now that that's just four major views that are out there, but there's all kinds of belief and confusion over these Nephilim. Let me say right up front, this is one of those things that's it's interesting to study. God put it there for a reason, and I hope you'll see in a minute why it's there. But this, uh, you know, to argue one point against another, it's not going to take away or add to your salvation, other than to say, you know, I want to believe the truth of God's word, and it's true. Now, how we look at that can, can be somewhat different. Today, uh, I will tell you there are great scholars that fall into a lot of the different camps. The word Nephilim, uh, it's related to the verb in Hebrew, nephal, which means to fall, to almost like it sounds, nephal, to fall. And that's why some people will say, well, it's, it's close to that, and fallen angels are fallen, obviously, and so their offspring would, would be fallen. And so that gives some credence to, to that viewpoint. But again, there there are different views. Uh, They can obviously be associated with with giants. And giant traits are in Scripture. They may not be limited to Nephilim. Uh, You know that by the time David's around, you come across one that's a Gittite or a man from Gath by the name of Goliath, right? The giant. And uh, you'll find the term Nephilim unclear uh, related to him because the Anakim come along as well. Uh, Add to that the translation of the Old Testament into Latin, the Latin Vulgate, and they will translate the term as gigantes, or gigantes, the word that we get giants from. Uh, There may have been some influence because of that, and we're talking about uh, a version written two to 300 years before Christ. So again... Uh, If I haven't confused you already, believe me, it can get a whole lot more (laughs) confusing to talk about them. Just understand, uh, one, you're going to find a lot of people if you read books or commentaries that think these are fallen angels, that Satan and his fallen angels breed with these human women, and they have these offspring called the Nephilim. Uh, It is one of the most popular views, and it stems from angels that are called sons of God, too in passages like Job 1, 6 or Job 2, verse 1, uh, Job 38, verse 7. And in fact, if the Nephilim were indeed half human, half fallen angel, it would give great understanding to the many ancient religious views after Babel and the views of gods and demigods and so on. Uh, I can't speak to that. I'm not a person of world religion. But again, as, as I already stated, Nephilim, it's related to the verb meaning to fall in Hebrew. So you'll, you'll find people that believe that, and they may even point to two passages in the New Testament, uh, 2 Peter 2, verses 1 to 11, or the little book Jude that we already read, uh, verses 4 through 8. Fallen angels under Satan, you know, they will say possessed men, caused them to breed, and, and, and you'll find that view. The other one is that the fallen angels overtook men. It wasn't the angels themselves, but rather that possession, that I just mentioned, that that caused these men to breed with women. Uh, The sons of God would be men who demons would inhabit. And unlike that previous idea, this one holds, well, the offspring aren't a mix of of angel and human. They're all human. They're just by demon possession, basically. Uh, It is possible for men to be overcome by Satan in Scripture and demons. Uh, Look at the influence of people like Judas in Luke 22, verse 3. Uh, Demons often enter into people like the story that we see in Mark 5, 15. But the question really is this then, would such people, overtaken by demons or fallen angels, would they warrant a title, sons of God? Mm, I don't think so. Uh, In the gospel accounts, many people are overtaken by demons, but never once are they called sons of God. Uh, Other biblical passages, they don't mention people who, or they they do mention uh, people overcome by spirits and demons, but they don't call them either sons of God. Uh, Then there's the the Sethite view, Uh, and the view of this is that the sons of God were literally the godly line from Adam to Seth down to Noah, and the Nephilim are just the fallen children who would follow after false gods, and it's probably the second most popular view of who this could be. Uh, it appears to the context of Genesis 5 that we just talked about, uh, this godly line of Seth, it mentions the Son of God and Nephilim next, so it naturally follows literary in the context that's what it would, what it would be. Uh, and again, a variant of that is, well, these are probably kings or, or rulers, and that might have some support, uh, such as, you know, again, Psalm 82 verses 1 through 6. Uh, but in, mo- in both cases of these Sethite views, it's assumed that there's a godly lineage from Adam to Seth and followed down to Noah. And we looked at Adam to Seth to Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Uh, these are the sons of God in the previous chapter, and their sons would begin to marry ungodly women or daughters of men, and their children would would follow after false gods and reject uh, the one true God. In other words, uh, whether you think of them as backsliders or people who just bought into the materialism of the world, they fall away from God. Hence the word Nephilim, again, from that verb to fall. They fall away from the truth that we're told uh, in Genesis 5 and earlier about who we were created. Now, the last view is, is that these are fallen men. And if you think about it, some of the men listed in, in the Bible from Seth's line, and probably some other lineages as well, they're called sons of God in keeping with the literary context. So the sons of God are merely godly men of the time. And, uh, and maybe we're just not taking this far enough. The Hebrew word Nephilim again means to fall. And for example, we know Cain fell away. Lamech, the descendant of Cain, uh, and many other men and women had fallen away. And these could basically be people that had fallen or turned from God in a severe way. And that would make sense as to why some of Canaan's descendants, uh, the descendants of Anak, the Anakim, were Canaanites in in Numbers chapter 13. All right. So again, if it confuses you, I apologize for that. But those are the four basic views of this. I think it does a merit that all through Scripture in the Old Testament, you're going to find giants uh, coming uh, up in discussion and people that they meet in Philistia. You're going to meet one that has a bed of iron, which was a very rare thing. Uh, But it it describes its length. You've got Goliath, who's over nine feet tall. And for whatever reason they're there, they're certainly giant-type people. Uh, Okay, so now the reason they're mentioned, what does this have to do with me? You know, why do I need to know this? Well, God's explaining what's happening. As mankind exists and they start to multiply and fill the earth, their goal is to manage creation. Their goal is to exhibit the image of God wherever they go. But that image is distorted by sin. And it goes from bad to worse and worse. And so we get to verse 5, and it gives a justification for God's response. Verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become upon the earth. And again, I'm back in in Genesis 6, verse 5. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth. And and here's a phrase or part of this verse you need to underline. And his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know, why would God create human beings knowing they would sin? I think that question assumes that people are victims caught in this vice that God is just squeezing them in, this vice of fate. But the Bible teaches that God in His goodness created a world of moral order in which Adam and Eve were free agents. He created them in His image, in His likeness. He gave them a unique quality of relationship with each other. And with him that was unlike any other, God entrusted them with absolute freedom, including the freedom to turn away from him. And unfortunately, that's what they did. And even though God knew beforehand what Adam and Eve would do, he gave them and granted them the capacity to do as they chose. God condemns no one unjustly, and that's why this is included in Genesis 6. He doesn't cause anyone to sin. He is the judge of all the earth. And he will do right by everyone. But he doesn't compel or coerce human creatures made in his image. Nothing can thwart his glory. Nothing can thwart his grace. Furthermore, God shows, uh, as you'll read time and again in scripture, like in Exodus 34, 6, that he is abounding in love and faithfulness. He doesn't leave the human race in its sin. Because remember, we're looking forward to Jesus Christ. And He, as a creator, graciously would become the Redeemer. Through His death and resurrection, the way to eternal life would be open to all who turn from sin to follow Him. And Nobody comes to the Father except through Him. But why destroy the earth? Well, look at the sins of mankind. God gave mankind the ability to fill the earth, that relationship, think about how that happens between a husband and a wife, and right from the start, the attack that Satan places upon marriage, and marriage is demonized. Marriage and its purpose is polluted to the point that we now have Nephilim and people multiplying that don't believe and don't follow and don't trust, but rather fall away from God instead of falling into His arms. And the whole population is infected with evil. Violence is idolized. Depravity, it all requires God's judgment. It calls for it. And the only hope of salvation is God's grace. Noah was a righteous man unlike the others, and I love that, that phrase, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, to find favor in God's eyes for any of us is solely because of God's grace. So it will be when Christ comes again that although man will have corrupted this earth to the point of utter depravity. You know, If you read in Timothy, Paul's words there, the, the things will go from bad to worse. It's God's grace alone that will save us. Um, on the first day of teaching his class, I love the story, for 250 college freshmen, R.C. Sproul uh, carefully explained an assignment of three term papers that would be due. Each paper was going to be due on the last day of September, October, and November. Very clear. And he said there will be no extensions except for emergencies for medical reasons. Okay, So everybody knew going into class, one paper due at the end of September, October, in November. Well, at the end of September, out of his class of 250, 225 students dutifully turned in their papers. 25 remorseful students came sick with fear, and they said, we're so sorry. You know, we didn't we didn't understand. We had trouble coming from high school to college. We promise we'll do better next time. And so R.C. Sproul bowed to their plea for mercy, and he, he said, all right, I'll give you an extension, but don't be late next month. Now again, they knew at the end of each month these papers were due. So October rolls around, this time out of 250 students, 200 of them turned their paper in on time and 50 showed up empty handed, twice as many. Please, oh please, they begged. You know, it was homecoming weekend, Uh, we just ran out of time again RC Sproul he relents but he says this is it you know there are only three papers Uh, this time there's no excuses next time you will get an F well the end of November came and out of 250 students only 100 students turned their papers in 150 students casually came to Dr Sproul and and said don't worry about it doc we'll get it to you soon and RC Sproul said no I'm sorry uh, he said, it's too late now. You get an F. And they howled in protest. Wait a minute. You know, that, that's not fair. You can't give us an F. There's 150 of us. Okay, Sproul replied once more. You want justice, do you? So here's what, here's what's just. I'm going to give you an F for all three papers that were late. Because that was the rule we started with, right? <laughs> and the students had quickly learned to take that mercy for granted. And he later reflected, they assumed it, that when justice suddenly fell, they were unprepared for it. It came as a shock and and it led to nothing but outrage. Now I share that story with you and I love that because in the same way, we often take God's mercy for granted. When judgment finally appears, we're shocked, we're outraged. That's exactly what happens in Genesis 6. You see, up to this point, the men and women who are being made in the image and the likeness of God, who are made to reflect God's incredible glory and goodness, they have blatantly Nephilim. They've fallen away from God. They've ignored God's commandments. They've rebelled against his good plan, his good heart for them. They've resented God's leadership in their lives. They've trampled on his plan for marriage and relationship. They've started hating and murdering one another. And all throughout the story, we find examples of God's mercy and patience. God promises judgment, but the judgment always seems to be what? Delayed or softened with mercy. But in Genesis chapter 6, God's judgment finally hits with full force. You know, the scripture says, The Lord saw The last time we saw that phrase was back in Genesis 1.31 when God saw all that he made and it was very good. And now we've moved from God saw that it was very good to God saw how great man's wickedness had become. And it's a wickedness that controls not only our actions, it doesn't just control our thoughts or our imagination. It controls all of humankind. Look in verses 11 through 12 of Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 6 verse 11 and 12. It says there, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And then he instructs him to make the ark in Genesis 1 we read that animals and humans should fill the earth now the earth is filled but it's filled with violence the, these verses could literally read the earth had gone to ruin all of it all of flesh had ruined its way it's the same Hebrew word that's used in Jeremiah 184 when the potter is working at the wheel and, and the work of art in his hand it's it's spoiled. The pot isn't turning out right, and so the potter has to begin with a new lump of clay. In other words, when God sends the flood, it's merely time to start a new creation. He's judging something that's just been ruined. That story has a dim view of the human heart, doesn't it? One Bible scholar said the question is not whether people are nice, but whether in the deep places of life, human persons and human community are capable of of saving themselves can we transcend calculated self-interest which invariably leads to death and the answer to in this story is we cannot at least if not if we're entirely left to ourselves it's important to keep in mind that the bible clearly teaches we're all part of this mess but how is everyone responding to this moral deterioration in our text Well, Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 showed us that most people in those days were responding like most of us, with outright apathy and indifference. Most people have taken these verses as an introduction only to the flood story, but there's a more straightforward explanation. These verses are more purply tied to the end of Genesis 5 rather than the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. You see, Genesis 5 begins like this. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them. And when they were created, he made them male and female. He called them mankind. So who are these sons of God and these daughters of men in Genesis 6? They're people that are doing life just like us. They're getting married. They're having kids. They're raising a family. They're doing business, but the storm is brewing, and they're all entirely oblivious to it. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 24, uh, verse 37 to 39. If you want to flip ahead there, Matthew 24, 37 through 39. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. Wow, they were just like us, stuck in the everyday nature of life, knee deep in racism in trivialities and any vision of something great, wonderful and beautiful in their own eyes. And I'd argue that we have it much worse because our lives are cluttered with distractions and media and trivialities. And we as a culture, we are amusing ourselves to death. We are the people that have professed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, but we've allowed our lives to become so awash in the trivial meaningless conversations and fights and agendas and reading and playing and views of God. And we're all guilty of massively amassing it. But I hope that you, as a Christian, have, have come to the senses to say, I don't want to live a trivial life anymore. I don't want to trivialize my faith. I don't want to trivialize God. I don't want to trivialize anything because life is meant to be this grand adventure with God knowing Him, pursuing Him, living passionately for God and with God, caught up with God's mission for the world, just like Noah. I want to be one that's that's approved unto God. And that desire, friends, um, even in Matthew 6.33, to seek first the kingdom of God, it should seize us, it should compel us, and it should burn within us so that the trivial stuff still exists. But it gets a lower level of focus every day on our agenda. Well, this passage says the human race had taken a massive turn for the worse. In Genesis 4, I mean, we saw the trend towards violence and brutality and arrogance between Cain and Abel. But nobody seemed to care. Nobody stopped to remember the glory of the Garden of Eden. No one had a hunger or a thirst for the beauty or harmony that used to exist. Everybody was accommodated to the ugliness, the disharmony, the violence, the brutality, the, the human arrogance and hatred. Everybody had gotten used to it. Everybody except for God, that is. And Noah. Now, I told you to underline something, and I, and I, think, I think, again, this bears repeating. Friends, when, when I told you at the end of verse 6 there, when it, when it said, excuse me, the Lord regretted he'd made human beings on the earth and the heart of God was deeply troubled. Do you see God's response? He, he says, I'll blot out man from whom i created on the face of the earth. You know, the Hebrew word for blot out is to erase by washing. And that's why some of your translations will, will change that. It's a total cleansing act. Imagine you wake up tomorrow morning and some vandal has come and they've spray painted vulgar graffiti all over the side of your house. Now, first you're gonna be sad, you're gonna be outraged, you're gonna be furious, you're gonna be frustrated. Later in the day, you're probably gonna take a power washer or you're gonna to have to go rent a, a sandblaster and start to clear it off. Well, that's the way God feels about his creation. But there's one crucial difference in this scene from Genesis. This isn't just surface graffiti. This is a mold that has crept into the wood into the the sheetrock, the flooring, even the furniture and the clothing, and in that case, all you can do is tear the house down and start over from scratch. You see, God will judge our sin. He'll judge our violence and indifference because God is not indifferent. He's passionately procreation. He's passionately pro-life in the broadest definition of those words. God's heart is for us. He doesn't like our destruction. He doesn't like seeing his good creation marred or his good plan scrambled in our lives. Most of us like hearing about God's love and grace, but, but what kind of God never fights against wrong? What kind of God would watch evil triumph over good and just turn a blind eye to violence and brutality and arrogance and apathy or, or just throw up his hands and say, well, whatever, you know? The Bible has so many examples of God's mercy, but mercy is never automatic. Friends, God's judgment is as real as His mercy. And that's exactly what some of you have come to expect from religion. Or maybe you've come to expect it from churches you've been at or the Christian faith. We screw up, God judges us. Now some of you might be thinking, that's exactly why I don't come to church. I mean, I'm just going to get loaded down with the burden of guilt and judgment. Well, you're partially right. God's judgment in this passage is real and it's unmistakable. But you've got to be careful because in the midst of God's judgment, there are two very surprising twists in this story. First of all was what I had you underline, that God's heart was filled with pain. Verse six, human behavior and the needed judgment were like a knife that pierced God's heart with grief. The Hebrew word for grief is an intense word, friends. It's a word that's used uh, in Genesis 34-7 when Jacob's son find out that their their sister Dinah has been raped by Shechem. Uh, When a group of brothers discover their sister's been raped, they're grieved. When King David was told his oldest son Absalom had just been murdered, This is the word that's used. When a wife is abandoned by her husband in Isaiah 54, 6, this is the word. It's used to describe the heart of God. God looks out at the broken and fragmented creation that he loves so much. And he grieves as if his sister has just been raped. Or his son has been murdered. Or his wife has just deserted him. In the Bible, our God feels... Friends, when God appears in human flesh, in the person of Jesus, he demonstrates in the flesh the vulnerable heart of God until the point that the spear of Longinus tears into his physical heart and blood and water pour forth. There are two occasions in the gospel accounts of Jesus when he cries on behalf of other people. On one, he's standing at the gravesite of a good friend in Lazarus. And we have the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Why? Doesn't Jesus believe in the resurrection? Doesn't Jesus know that he's going to be victorious over death? Of course he knows. But he also knows about life in a fallen and fractured world. He knows that life and death always hurt. And so he stands by a friend's grave and he cries. On another occasion, he rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, surveying the great city that has rejected his coming. His heart breaks, and he says in Luke 19:42, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And Jesus wept again, convulsive sobs of grief, as the Greek indicates. I'm so sorry for what's happened to you no one should be treated this way friends has anybody ever wept with you and for you has anybody ever looked into the broken things of your life and expressed grief it's easy to avoid a God that's always angry and always disappointed with you but what do you do when you recognize a God who weeps a God who stands beside your graveyard a God who surveys your life and your tears. A God who hears the doctor's diagnosis. Friends, that's the God you will find in the Bible. And that kind of God provides a way out of the mess. That's the first surprise in our text. You, you can't avoid God's judgment. But in the midst of judgment, you find a God with tears streaming down his face. But then in the midst of judgment and cleansing, you also find God making a way out. Genesis 6.8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, in the person of Noah, you find in the midst of judgment and cleansing, there's grace. You know what grace is, right? I mean, grace is, is receiving what you don't deserve as a free, lavish, over-the-top gift. That's what Noah found. The order here is important. God's initiative of grace comes before. Noah's righteousness. God finds Noah before Noah finds God. In the midst of this mess and darkness and violence and self-destruction, God reaches out his hand to Noah. He's not a powerful person. He's not a famous person. He's just an ordinary guy, but God chooses him anyway. That's how grace works. And every time you see in, in the Bible some judgment of God, you'll also find his mercy And going back to our house illustration, it's as if God says, look, this building, it's going to have to be condemned. It's coming down. The mold, the rot, the mildew uh, has gone too far. It's too deep, too destructive. We've got to tear it apart. But you don't have to stay in the house, okay? Let me show you a way of escape so that you can go free. And friends, the Bible is at least in part a story that shows us how seriously we should take sin. Because God takes sin seriously. It cost his son his life. But the Bible is also a grand, joyful story about God opening the way out. All throughout the Bible. You know, in the early 1960s, Milgram, a PhD student at Yale, started a series of experiments called Obedience to Authority. And participants, including a learner, a teacher, and and an experimenter were involved, and the experimenter represented the voice of authority. The teachers who were ordinary people like you and me, they were supposed to administer electric shocks to the learners whenever they answered a question wrong. Now the the teachers didn't know it, but the learners were actually paid actors. And when they received the shock, they would cry and groan, but in Milgram's experiment, most of the teachers obeyed the instructions, and they kept increasing the level of the shock. Ultimately, over two-thirds of those teachers, they kept obeying the experimenter and the white coat until they punished their learners with what they thought was 450 maximum volts. (laughs) Now, based on that little test and survey, apparently obedience is a nasty word. We're suspicious of obedience. if something that you do, you know, for dogs and not for human beings. It's mindless, it's scary, it hurts other people. Or, or is it? You see, our text in Genesis 6 tells the story of messy, costly, beautiful obedience from an ordinary man named Noah. It's not where we might even expect obedience because through, through his story, we learn it's when we're loving God. It's when we're, we're knowing God and experiencing God that we live a life of active obedience to God. You know the world is filled uh, with ancient flood stories, but there are crucial differences and themes in the Bible that set it apart. The Babylonian flood stories, for example, emphasize this heroic image of its main character, while well, the Bible story begins with God and emphasizes His grace. Only then does it tell us about Noah's simple, humbly, and costly response of obedience to God's grace. It all begins and ends with God. And as a follower of God, you're going to live a life of costly, messy, but beautiful obedience. And all this leads us to this this wonderful man, Noah, the man who epitomizes costly, messy, beautiful obedience. Verse 9 tells us in Genesis 6, Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. The word for blameless means defect-free, wholesome, sound. Uh, It does not imply Noah was perfect or sinless. What it does imply is that there's something special about Noah. He's consistently obedient to God. Look at the verses in the account, chapter 6, verse 22. It says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. He'd never seen an ark. He didn't know what all this was, but he obeyed God. Chapter 7, verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Verse 9, as God had commanded Noah. Chapter 7, verse 16, as God had commanded Noah. Chapter 8, verses 15, 16, and 18, then God said to Noah, come out of the ark. So Noah came out. Noah's life motto was, just do it God's way. Did you notice Noah never, he he doesn't speak for the entire story. God gives four speeches, but Noah, he just keeps his mouth shut and does his job. Now, now he's not a mindless robot. He's a flesh and blood guy just like me. He's got real problems, real struggles, neighbors that are laughing at him. They're confused. Uh, But when you come to Christ, friends, understand God didn't expect you to be a mindless robot either. Noah may very well have questioned He may have doubted or argued along the way. But all we have is the end result of his journey. He accepted God's grace and he responded by listening and obeying God time and time again. He perfected the art of obedience. Not the art of thinking about obedience, okay? He acted. He put his faith into practice. And because he did, the ark was built. The animals were saved. Noah and his sons and their wives were saved. But obedience is costly, and it, and it will cost you something. When you look at the details of the ark in Genesis 6, uh, verse 14-16, through 16, someone has once estimated the dimensions of Noah's ark was about 95,700 square feet. Now that's much smaller than the modern ocean liner, the Queen Elizabeth II, but it's larger than the Nina Pinta and the Santa Maria of Columbus. The length of 450 foot equals one and a half American football fields. So we're talking about a massive project. And if you've ever been down to Hebron, Kentucky uh, to see the ark there, that's a great thing to see, I understand. Haven't been there yet myself. Been driven past there many times. I've been to the the museum there, but never saw the ark. Want to do that. Uh, But imagine what obeying God would cost Noah. I mean, this is not a hobby that you do after work. This is going to consume his time. His money, his energy, his life, and that of his kids. See, when you're in love, it affects everything about you. And obedience is the flow of God's love in your life. Your faith should cost you something. If it doesn't cut into your lifestyle, if it doesn't cost you anything, is it really faith? Jesus said, if you're going to follow me every day, you have to pick up your cross. You know, consider the cost, pick up the cross, and follow me. When King David entered a worship service, he said in Second Samuel twenty-four twenty-four, I will not offer to the Lord my God offerings that cost me nothing. So if you come up after a worship service and you say, Hey, Bill, that was a great service. Perfect. That's exactly what I wanted. Uh, what I want to say is, "Why wow, I'm so sorry that worship cost you nothing this morning. I'm sorry that I gave you a cheap worship and you didn't offer anything valuable to God. Uh, I'll never say that. But, friends, I hope you know that obedience is costly. It's messy. Noah's was. The whole point of the ark was not to permanently escape the world. The ark was created so Noah and his community could re enter the world as bearers of God's love. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. So in other words, the message, the faithfulness he had for God was one he tried to share in messages with his neighbors, with his hometown, with those that were alive, and they chose to ignore him. And Noah would experience not just a local flood that would only leave a few sediment layers, like floods do along the Mississippi or other places today. God's record is clear. The water covered the entire globe and killed all the animals on the earth. Those conditions are the only way to explain worldwide fossil-bearing layers thousands of feet deep. Geologists repeatedly discover the, the catastrophic effects of local flooding on the Earth's surface and it results in the same conclusion every time. Substantial amounts of water have the same geological effect in a short period of time, even laying down rock layers that hypothesize millions of years Of slow-moving water could have, so the Grand Canyon and all the art, the 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 architecture of nature has an explanation in the flood of Noah. And like people do today, almost certainly, uh, the people of Noah's day they were they were busy building their lives of pleasure. They didn't care that judgment was coming. But again, uh, you know, and if you want to read forward, you can go to Second Peter chapter 2 verse 5 and there Noah's described as this preacher of righteousness. Uh, Psalm 104 verses 6 through 9 will give you additional information on the the effects of the flood and how the mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place that God established for them. Such incredible things and I I do leave that flooding account for you uh, to read on your own but I want you to see that when God acts he does so justly. And when God does so, He does so with mercy from the time before the flood, through the flood, and even after the flood. It's why God would look after coming out of the ark upon Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. And it says in chapter 8, uh, verse 19, that all the animals and the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land, came out of the ark one kind after another. And Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and set it in his heart, the same heart that had been broken, the same heart that had led it to tears. He said, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, never again will I destroy all living things as I have done. For as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And God begins his covenant again with Noah. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Again that restoration of covenant is given. God's value of life is restored, and God gives the beautiful image of the rainbow in the sky, of his promise, as a sign of the covenant established between him and all of life on earth. Well, we're going to stop there and we'll pick up at the end of chapter 9 and 10 uh, as we get into the nations looking forward to Abraham next week. Uh, I hope that as you read God's word that you ask uh, the heavenly Father to open your heart, to open your experiences every day, to see not only The judgments of God, but to see the grace, the mercies, the hope of God that his Holy Spirit brings as he He speaks to you. Let's close our time in prayer together. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you once again for this time uh, with my unseen brothers and sisters uh, uh, online, on their phones, uh, recognizing before you, Father, we need to repent because much like the world that Noah lived in much like the world that came after him wickedness does seem to be the inclination of the heart and so we need the power of your spirit uh, to choose rightly father we're thankful that it's your righteousness that makes all the difference uh, in our salvation father i ask you help us to choose right to do right and to be right to to seek your perfection in our lives but then father to to come before you and and acknowledge where we've fallen short I know that you're just and you will forgive us when we do that. Your word promises that. Uh, but Father, we also want to acknowledge before you that sometimes it feels like we're following and, and we're nothing but shut up inside of an ark. <laughs> we feel like our lives are becoming very narrow. And Father, even here in these times of isolation, even when those that we love are the, the only ones that we get to see, uh, Father, I ask you give us a greater vision of the world that needs you. Lord, we don't want to see Uh, anyone lost. We want to see them come to repentance and salvation in you. So use us. Use our lifestyle, but use our words. Use our kindness and our motivated acts to to draw people's attention to you, to your covenant that you long to make with them. Uh, I thank you so much for Jesus, that he is the ark of our safety, that in him we have a life of freedom and liberty. And we just bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, friends. We'll talk to you next week.